0: You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from 1 Timothy chapter 4 verses 1 through 5. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart Help us now to hear, to receive, and to be nourished by this food of your word. We pray that you would do this by the power of your spirit, for the glory of Christ, for our own joy, and for your great name, In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Hey there everyone, my name is Nathan, I see a few of you I haven't met few of you I haven't seen in a while. It's good to see you. Uh, we announced this a couple weeks ago, and Clint mentioned at the beginning of our service, but probably every week now we'll begin reminding you that four weeks from tonight, March 24th, we'll be across the street that way at First United Methodist Church. Uh, and members, hopefully you saw in this Friday's member email that we're going to have a members meeting the Friday night before, which is March 22nd. Wait for it breath (laughs) we'd also like to announce another change for our Sundays Uh, starting on March 24th that first Sunday across the street we're going to begin meeting not at 5 p.m. but at 4 Uh, maybe that feels weird to you like you can't have that you can't do that that's church in the middle of the day Well, uh, we're going to. And I think uh, after a month or two of transition for you all that you're going to really like it. Uh, I've been a part of a church. My family has been a part of a church before that met at four, and it allowed everyone, not just those with kids, uh, but everyone to hang out for a bit and linger and go out to dinner uh, because people weren't worried about getting lunches packed and school ready for tomorrow morning. Uh, also, as Morgan Wingard joked the other night, we are literally going to bring our church out of the darkness and into the light. Uh, yeah, uh, I loved it a few weeks ago on Super Bowl Sunday when we walked out of this building, and it was still sunny outside. It was bright. and It was great. Uh, so keep an ear out for more reminders uh, over the next month or so. Well, I think I told you before, from up here before, that Thanksgiving is like my favorite day of the year. Uh, other than opening day of baseball season, which I think should be a national holiday, I, I, it's really one of uh, my favorite days. I, I love Thanksgiving. Uh, yes, it's probably because of gluttony and because of, like, the Dallas Cowboys, but but uh, also, Like, just going around the table and hearing from people about why they're thankful for the ways in which God has blessed them personally and us together, and we, around our table, will go around and, like, force our children to give one reason why they're thankful for every other person in the family. Uh, It's just good to discipline ourselves in thankfulness. But what Paul is going to say here in 1 Timothy 4, that... is is that Thanksgiving isn't just a a once-a-year forced, disciplined American holiday, but Thanksgiving is the whole of the Christian life. We've seen that Paul is writing this letter to Timothy in order that he might know how one ought to behave within the household of God. We saw that uh, two weeks ago at the end of chapter three. Within the family of God, which finds its expressions in local churches, how should this family live? What should this family believe? What should and how should this family be structured and ordered? And then how then, as we'll really think throughout the majority of the rest of this book, how should this family care for itself? How should it care for the individual members of this family? But tonight, how should this family live in and understand the world which surrounds it? We might answer that question, how should the family of God live in the world and understand it, with just two words, with thankfulness, and come to that through these first five verses that we heard read. And so right at the top, we might say that the big idea for this paragraph, the big idea for indeed our sermon tonight, might be this, that because of the freedom that Christ has won for us at the cross, we can now live and enjoy all of life with thanksgiving all of it, because of what Jesus has done, we can enjoy all of life with thanksgiving. And so we'll think through this text tonight in two halves and under two headings, rejecting in thanklessness and then receiving with thanksgiving. So let's read these first three verses of 1 Timothy 4 again together and think through uh, this heading of rejecting or rejected in thanklessness. So Paul says in verse one, now the Spirit expressly says, that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So first question is for us, as we read these first couple of words of that verse 1 is when and where the Spirit expressly says that some will depart from the faith. Where does the Spirit say the things that Paul is so clear that uh, he does say? Well, Paul could perhaps uh, be understanding the Spirit's role in his own ministry as an apostle, and he's here referring back to something that he earlier had told this Ephesian church in which Timothy is ministering here in Acts 20, Where Paul told the Ephesian elders, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Or maybe even more likely referring back to the words of Jesus himself when he warned in Matthew 24. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. So the Holy Spirit has told Christians throughout his word that we should not be surprised when false teachers with false doctrine begin to pop up and lead people away. This doesn't mean that we should not be saddened by it, that we should not be uh, upset by its effects on people, but even the more reason to be prepared for this kind of teaching. It's inevitable. It's going to come. This kind of teaching that will lead people away from the finished work of Jesus, who is the Christ, the the Son of God. And then Paul immediately raises the stakes of what's happening when someone leaves the faith by saying that they're devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. Now while I we certainly, perhaps you've met someone who like actively engages in satanic worship. I think the old quote here is true that the devil's clearest ruse or the cleverest ruse is to make men believe that he does not exist. Perhaps you might remember Kaiser Sose saying something of the same sort. The devil's greatest trick is to convince someone that he does not exist. That no no like there's nothing in this universe apart from material molecules and atoms like don't get too stressed out about jesus he's a helpful teacher but there are plenty of helpful teachers out there don't get too bent out of shape about what he and the rest of the bible has to say about your life like take the parts that are helpful and that make you feel some sense of joy and of peace and just kind of do away with the rest don't worry To which Paul says, demonic. Demonic. These are damned lies and falsehoods that rob Christ of his glory and the transformative loving power of changing his people. Jesus called Satan a liar and the father of lies. John tells us in 1 John 4 not to believe every teaching in spirit, but to test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false teachers have gone out from the world Many, John, Jesus, Paul, all of, all of these are warning of the inevitability of false teaching that will lead people away. Wolves can cloak themselves in all kinds of sheep's clothing. And these wolves might be easier to spot when the sheep's clothing is an Armani suit and the teaching is that of equating uh, the kingdom of God perhaps with health and wealth or even the kingdom of America But wolves are still wolves even when they really look and act like sheep, exhibiting brokenness, exhibiting humility, even exhibiting surfaced love for God, what looks to be love for God or surfaced love for people. Now it's not necessarily our jobs as individual Christians to identify and label, to put into two categories of the real sheep and the not. Jesus has given us, has told us that he will do that. That is not our job but we must be aware of whom we are listening to, of whom we are following. Every time you follow someone on any form of social media, any time you read a book, any time you listen to a podcast or listen or watch a sermon, any time you listen to music, watch TV, any time you do any of these things, you are inviting someone, you are inviting perhaps a group of people to counsel you, to influence you, to teach you. So choose wisely use discernment. But it's sometimes difficult to identify who is a sheep and who is a wolf. It's sometimes more difficult to have wisdom and discernment. Who ought you follow? Who belongs to the flock of God and who's following Christ the shepherd and who is not? So how does this kind of departure happen for people? How does it how do people who appeared to once be part of the flock of God then leave? How they were perhaps devoted to Christ and then Left well, verse two. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. This is now the third time in this letter that Paul has tied together uh, a good conscience and the sincerity of faith. So the the root, the the fountainhead of false teaching, the source of it, of the 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 fountainhead of ultimately of apostasy, of someone who leaves the faith, is insincerity, of playing the part of an actor. Rather than sincere faith with genuine love for God, the person just plays the part, perhaps for a very long time and very convincingly. Perhaps for all kinds of reasons. Perhaps there's social pressures on a person to act like a Christian. Perhaps there's just been uh, habits of morality that have formed from this person's childhood. Perhaps there's internal or even external commendation for playing the part well. Just as like a an actress who has just finished a wonderful performance and is lauded with thrown flowers and applause, sometimes we can act the part so well that we get commended for looking and playing the part of a Christian very well. But when any or all of these are the roots of the Christian life, there is actually no genuine life from within. There is no authentic and life-giving and sustaining power. It's just merely stapling some good-looking and healthy apples on a dead tree. What looks to be wonderfully ripe and full of life on the outside with no life within. And when faith is insincere, the conscience becomes one of the very first things to go. We bought a new house in December. We painted the entire interior of our house gray, like you do. Uh, But have you guys ever had to pick a paint color color? for walls inside your house it is extremely stressful like there are thousands of colors on hundreds of swatches that you can get at Lowe's like how do you even begin right we brought home probably 10 swatches of just gray like 30 different shades of gray and how do you even begin to pick the right one we had to like actually buy and paint several rooms in our new house before we actually landed on the right one this This gray was too blue. That one was too brown. This one is pretty much purple. Like, how does that, how does gray become purple? But it does. It's very difficult. But alpaca, alpaca is the Sherwin-Williams gray that you were all looking for. Anyway, uh, this is what happens in our lives, though. We start with gray. We make a little compromise here. It's still gray. It's perhaps not sin but it's a little less than the gray than we started with. And then it's a little less gray, and then it's a little little less gray, and then, doggone it, a couple years later, we're living in a purple room. The color has changed altogether. So this is what happens with our consciences. Our consciences can become seared. And this is a very uh, illustrative word. When our skin gets burned... It slowly or even instantly can become insensitive. The nerves are deadened. The skin is no longer able to feel, certainly feel pain. We've already thought quite a bit about the conscience, especially from chapter 1, verse 5 of this letter, but the same thing uh, can happen to our conscience as a burn on our skin. The more compromises and excuses that we make for sin, the less painful it can seem as we go perhaps slowly over time, perhaps instantaneously, so that eventually our conscience, our internal regulator or governor, our spoken uh, governor for what is right and wrong, no longer is a trustworthy guide for right and wrong. And so we've thought about how the conscience is like a muscle. It can be cultivated, it can be strengthened and grown, or it can be ignored and it eventually atrophies and is of no use. But then, this text, in 1 Timothy 4, and now our sermon, takes an unexpected turn. Like, what were you expecting me to say next? Like, the conscience is something that you should be be, be cultivating. Why? Because you don't want to be insincere in your faith. You don't want to devote yourself to demons and leave the faith altogether, do you? So cultivate the conscience. Don't make compromises in sin. Make sure that you are you are watching the right TV shows or reading the right books. Don't compromise in the way that you talk to your spouse. Don't compromise in how physically involved you are with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, someone that you're dating. Don't make compromises in sin, everyone. Be growing in godliness. But that is not what Paul says next. The thing that Paul surprisingly confronts is the kind of teaching that is not too loose with morality but is too strict. The kinds of false teachers that Paul is here most concerned about is the kinds in verse 3 that those who forbid marriage, those who require people from abstaining from certain kinds of food. Now don't hear me wrong, okay? Like n- next week's sermon, Paul is going to tell Timothy to train in godliness. Our lives of increasing godliness are necessary both for our own lives of joy, the clarity of the gospel to those in the world and to the honor of Christ himself. But we'll mostly let that sermon be next week's sermon. Because while we tend to think that it's our wrong thoughts, it's our weak habits, it's our bad works that keep us from God, Paul is going to confront the reality that just as often it is our good works that keep us from God. It is our trust in our ability to obey our ability and our desire and our commitment to read the right books to spend our time wisely our commitment to working toward building better habits right I'll never be what I'm not becoming we tell ourselves and that's right but I have to be making progress this week I have to be growing and if I'm not then this week is a failure and perhaps christ's work is not making itself known in my life. We must say the right things, we must pray the right things, we must avoid the wrong things. And with crowbars out, we think, perhaps even subconsciously, that we can just force our way into the throne room of God's acceptance for us, which is just about as dumb as thinking that a crowbar will help us like, walk around on the surface of the sun. Such dazzlingly, beautiful purity, such life-giving heat, such love and consuming greatness in which a crowbar and our weakness have nothing to accomplish. Many of us know that our works can't save us and yet we are, as one pastor says, hopelessly meritorious. Hopelessly trying to pad the resume and the record. Convincing ourselves that we are just the kind of person that God would want to save. Convincing ourselves that we are the kind of person that he would want to accept and commend for our good and right living. Or constantly self-condemning of ourselves because we aren't measuring up to the standard of good living that God has given us or that we have placed upon ourselves. We become like these false teachers who without any thankfulness for who God is, for what God has done, for how he has provided for us in Christ, we start adding rules of obedience for what it means to be a Christian. These false teachers, they reject marriage. They reject the eating of some foods, perhaps going back to the Jewish dietary laws, perhaps more likely the same kinds of false teachers that Paul is confronting in Romans and in 1 Corinthians, that they were probably rejecting the eating of meat. These guys are probably celibate vegetarians and they are imposing their norms of celibacy, their norms of um, abstinence from meat on the entirety of the community of Christ. Now this seems kind of weird to us, right? I mean, that seems like a very culturally outdated thing for us. It doesn't seem like there's much, much practical application for us. I don't know of many who are advocating and trying to impose celibacy on the rest of the community if anything the allure of pornography the allure of extramarital sex the the allure of adultery the allure of gluttony even sure do seem to be greater temptations for us but oh the subtle cunning of the enemy As one pastor asks, do you think he has only one strategy for using food and sex to bring about rebellion against the true God? Across cultures, humans from all of time and some Christians from the earliest years have tended toward assuming that our appetites, both our appetites for food and for sex, are evil. They're debased. They are unnatural. The things experienced and enjoyed in our natural bodies, because our natural bodies are under the fall of Genesis three, they argue. Therefore, these kinds of experiences, these kinds of pleasures, are debased and under the influence of the fall of Genesis three. The dominant attitude of the Catholic Church towards sex throughout much of its history is that of that of a necessary evil. Yes, it's necessary for procreation, but fallen and corrupt that it is, it's just, I guess, necessary. But ultimately, it's fallen and corrupt, even if with one spouse. And we humans have also been cross-culturally regular about building invisible fences, about what foods ought to be eaten or not. The kinds of food that serious-minded people are to eat, but those who are less serious, they eat those other kinds. This is a way for us to categorize who is part of the in-crowd or the out-crowd. But what these false teachers are doing is just replacing one law for another. And if that was the case, as Kara read from Galatians 2 tonight, what did Christ die for? He died for nothing if he was just coming to bring us to a law, a new law. Now there are plenty of reasons to not get married. There are plenty of reasons to not even eat meat. But what is it in us in these false teachers and in us that provokes this kind of moral rule-keeping, this kind of asceticism, the kind of removing oneself from the kinds of gifts that God has given us to be enjoyed. After hearing of the gospel of Christ, why would people teach and believe this kind of stuff? Why would we add new laws for us to keep? Well, if we can create some difficult yet manageable external rules to follow, it can help us to quiet the internal yet unmanageable uh, guilt that we constantly feel. I just recently heard in a podcast, I heard of a guy who, he murdered this person and he had thought that he had got away with it for years and years. And what this guy was doing was every now and then he would call some old friends and confess to some a uh, smaller way in which he had wronged these people. He was calling them to say, hey, I'm really sorry about this. You may not have even know this had happened, but I'm, I, I just need to call and make things right. Not, while all the while, not confessing to murder. The, I heard a, the, the, the psychologist was analyzing what he was doing, and he called these symbolic expiations. Expiation meaning a kind of like a, a sending away of Guilt. So these were symbolic ways for him to, small yet symbolic ways for him to deal with this huge weight of the guilt of murder. Because we still feel guilt of sin, we can then therefore make more manageable rules for us to follow and remain innocent of. So I never drink alcohol, or I always vote the right way, or post the right things on social media, not like those other people These are certainly, not always, but perhaps symbolic expiations of our own, ways in which to deal with the unmanageable weight of guilt that we feel in our own consciences. Another reason we might add a new law is that it helps us to feel superior over and against those who aren't as serious as we are. If I am more serious with my time or my appetites, then I'm a person who is more worthy of God's salvation. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's it's grace, grace, and all grace. But, I mean, look at me. I'm the kind of person that God would want to save, aren't I? I do all the things that he is asking of me. I'm commendable. He should want to save someone like me. Look how serious I am. I never listen to that kind of music. I never spend my money foolishly like those people. Look how frugal and generous I am. I study, I work extremely hard. I've figured out the best way to parent or educate my children and all other forms are unrighteousness. Maybe none of those specific examples are true of you, but I find myself do don't you? I find myself all day like subconsciously trying to convince myself that I am like categorically different and better and smarter and more enlightened and uniquely special against the rest of the culture. Do like do you? I am doing this constantly. We can do this by elevating ourselves. Like I drink better coffee, or I watch better documentary films. I eat healthier. I drink healthier than the common folk. I think about race co- correctly. I think about the economy and politics correctly, not like those ignorant fools. Out there who disagree with me, or I can do this. Perhaps we all can by lowering myself in a kind of like false humility. Like I'm gonna just keep it real, right? I'm not. I don't. I'm not pretentious like all those hipsters out there, or I, like all of those academics, or all that Hollywood crowd. I'm just like an everyday person, and but yet what, what I'm doing when I do that is saying I am therefore better than them, right? In false humility, I am saying I am better than them. Or even, I can lower myself in the kind of self-loathing false humility that says, I need to feel really bad about being forgiven. And we do this, perhaps even subconsciously, because then it makes me feel more worthy to be forgiven. If I feel really bad about this then perhaps God will want to forgive me even more. And then my self-loathing becomes just another form of works righteousness. We are twisted up and confused, sinful humans. In other words, if you're in the membership class right now, all of this is just a way that we pretend, a way that we perform pretending that we are not as bad off as we actually are and a way to perform our way into God's acceptance of us. And neither are grace and neither are the gospel. It is not your works, not your effort, not your humility even that make you savable. And no matter how much you try to pretend, no matter how much you try to convince others or to convince yourself, you have nothing to offer to God. Nothing to make you worthy of acceptance. And so because we have a minimized gospel, because we have a miniature cross in our lives, we walk around in life with very little thankfulness. We reject gifts from God that should be received with thanksgiving. We walk around in a life of joyless ingratitude, which is demonic. It is a life that doesn't walk under the warmth of God's grace and his love and his provision, which is exactly the first tactic that Satan used with Adam and Eve in the garden, wasn't it? To portray God as like tight-fisted and stingy, as someone who is withholding the really good stuff. He's holding out on the things that will really make them happy. And so they respond in thanklessness and in sin. And so these false teachers are making up all kinds of new rules to follow because they don't understand the gospel. They are rejecting God's good gifts and thanklessness. So instead of rejecting in thanklessness, which is demonic, now let's consider these last two verses of receiving with thanksgiving, which is the way of Christ. Verse 4, Paul says, "...for everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy..." By the word of God and prayer. Now again, if you're like me, my first inclination is to want to run to all of the ways in which this verse does not apply, right? Uh, when we pastors got together on Tuesday morning and we read through this text and we prayed through it, I told them that I was going to make this the marijuana sermon. How? Uh, why this verse doesn't apply to all of the ways in which advocates of marijuana want it to apply. And of course, not all natural things are helpful or useful or to be ingested. Uh, They are not to be received with thanksgiving, like, oh, look, here's a ricin plant or hemlock. As long as I eat it or inhale it with thanksgiving, then it's good. No, that's not thanksgiving. That's suicide, right? Or because God has made all meat, Pure, how about I just pick up this little poisonous frog, which though the size of a nickel has enough poison to kill 25 humans. That You should not do that, right? There are, there are ways in which that we ought to be uh, cultivating wisdom and good consciences. And yet, that is a different sermon for a different day. Paul doesn't want Timothy to settle down and think about all of the caveats he wants him to consider, to lift his eyes, and to exult in not the caveats, in the freedom that he has in Christ. But it is freedom because of Christ. Because just as we did at the end of chapter 3, the mystery of godliness, how, how someone behaves and lives in a godly way, the key to godly living is the person and the work of Christ The main application from this text tonight is not necessarily go out and eat and drink whatever you want, but to live all of your life with thanksgiving because of Christ. This is all about your freedom in Christ. Rest in the gospel. Rest in the finished work of Christ. It is finished. He has lived for you. He has died for you. He has been raised to new life that you might be raised to new life with him. It is finished. God has not withheld his love. He is not tight-fisted. He is not stingy waiting for you to mess up so that he might joyfully and gladly pull back his blessing and his love for you. But that despite your weakness, despite your failure, he might still pour out more and more grace, more and more joy, more and more freedom in Christ. If you know Christ and if you are trusting him, if you have not come to him with a resume, with a record of your good accomplishments, the ways in which you have obeyed him, but instead come with nothing but the empty hands of faith. Then you no longer have to condemn yourself for the ways in which you failed yesterday. You no longer have to be discouraged by the ways in which today, you have not measured up to God's standard for your life or your own standard for your life. You no longer have to be anxious about tomorrow, that you're not going to be growing in enough progress. Jesus has accomplished it all in his life and his death. Your record of wrongdoing and failure, your record of wrongdoing and failure, both past and present and of future, is done away with in the cross. It has been your record of weakness and of failure has been like attracted to the cross throughout time and through space. The cross is some magnet pulling and attracting all of the sin and the weakness and a failure of the people in this world who might come to him in faith. Being pulled and attracted, and then the power of Christ comes out and meets it for just a second and then obliterates it. It's like a just an exploding death star. Or something. Like there is nothing left of it. Vaporized. Gone. There is nothing there to observe or to condemn yourself with any longer. It's gone. The wonder and the work of Christ has done away with it. And yet, I think we too often sing subconsciously throughout the week. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. If this week I do my part, he will hold me fast. We are hopelessly meritorious. But the cross of Christ has come to obliterate, to vaporize our even self-righteousness. In Colossians 2, Paul says, and you who were dead in your trespasses, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt, obliterated, vaporized, That stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Hebrews 10. Therefore, brothers, sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, let us not draw near with timidity, let us not draw near near with discouragement and of anxiety and of self-condemnation, but with what? With confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Let us draw near not with a weak, and a fragile and a condemned and dark heart, but with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure pure water. Or Romans 8, there is therefore now some condemnation left for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you will do your part, Maybe there will be less and less condemnation. And at the end of your life, if, you're, if you've done more good than bad, then it's okay. No, there is, for those who are in Christ Jesus, no condemnation. The death star of your weakness and fragility, of your rebellion and your hatred of God, vaporized through the cross of Christ. So in the, cri- in, in the cross, your past has no bearing on your future. This is amazing and astounding. In the cross of Christ, like the, door, the doorway to God is open wide to anyone who comes in weakness, who comes with open hands of faith. So maybe tonight would be the night that you walk out of here in freedom with a, from a guilty conscience for the first time, sprinkled clean and washed by him. Maybe tonight would be the night that you would open your heart to the work of the Spirit to wash you, to vaporize this record of debt that you are carrying with you. The ways in which you have not met God's expectations for your life, the ways in which you have not met your own expectations for your life. And that by grasping onto the cross of Christ with faith, grasping on and holding on to his promises that you might be made new. We sang earlier, we sang to each other, we perhaps all sang to you, if you tarry, if you wait until you're better, you will never come at all. Why? Because you'll never be better apart from Christ. But when you come to him, oh, there are just 10,000 charms. He'll make you better, all right, and way more way more than you could have ever dreamed or expected. And all of us who have been made right before God through him, we can walk out of this building tonight with joy, with like a a little extra pep in our step, with freedom to enjoy him, undoubtedly still living in a world of darkness, still living in a world of pain, in a world of injustice, in lives of still self-worship and idolatry, and yet with freedom. We can enjoy all things as gifts with thanksgiving because he is good and because he has been good to us. We can pray and live in thankfulness, not just before we sit down to eat a meal. Right? Do, we, do we do this? We, we ought to do this. We ought to pray before we eat, not because it's a checkmark to, checkbox to, to mark he will hold you fast if you pray before you eat your meals. No, this is not something that we ought to do just because we have to, but in genuine thankfulness that God has provided when he did not have to, that God has provided not just like a, 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 like a tasteless pill of sustenance for your day, but a food that tastes good. That's amazing that he's done this. But we should not just pray with Thanksgiving, maybe two or three times a day before you eat, but in the whole of life, The British author G.K. Chesterton once wrote, You say grace before meals. All right. I say grace before the play and the opera, and grace before the concert, and grace before I open a book, and grace before sketching, painting, swimming, fencing, boxing, walking, playing, dancing, and grace before I dip the ink or the pen into the ink. Why would he say this? Because he sees all of these things as gifts that God did not have to give, But he did, and these are ways in which that he can enjoy God by experiencing these gifts. Verse 4: For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. This doesn't mean that everything that you do, as long as you are thankful for it, means that it is a form of worship. We need to grow in wisdom. We need to grow with cultivated consciences. There are things that Christians should not do. But when walking with Christ with sincerity of faith, with good consciences, now all things can become worship. Notice the progression from good in verse 4 to holy in verse 5. He makes good things into holy things. He has made all things good, but good isn't as good as holy, is it? And that's what God wants to do in and through us. Sex and marriage isn't inherently worship. Sex and marriage can still be selfish. It can be idolatrous, but it can become worship. It is made holy by the word of God and prayer. How's that? Well, by understanding what God says to us about sex. We understand him And it through his word. And then in how we respond to him about sex. In prayer. In other words, sex moves from being a good thing to a holy thing. When we are just breathing in and breathing out God's word and thanksgiving. What he has said to us and in our thankfulness to him. This is when a good thing becomes holy. When it can be received as a good gift to enjoy him even in. Eating a good steak some great waffles, some sweet frozen yogurt. None of these things in and of themselves are inherently worshipful, but all of them can become worship. We can easily still be gluttonous. Christians who are growing in their understanding of the Bible and of the gospel can still be gluttonous, can still be selfish and idolatrous, But when we are receiving God's word and what he has said to us about creation and what he has said to us about the work of Christ on the cross and then responding in thanksgiving, breathing out and breathing in what he has, his word and exhales of thanksgivings and of amens, then eating can become Holy. So can sketching and painting and swimming and fencing and boxing and walking and playing and dancing and watching YouTube videos and playing baseball and wrestling with your kids and your brothers and all of these things. Great gifts. Studying. Not just a, form, a necessary form of the fall. A way to learn. A way to grow. Reading. All of these things can be expressions of thanksgiving and can be made Holy. So don't walk out of here with more rules for yourselves. Ways in which you ought to restrict yourselves. Serious Christians do this and don't do that. Maybe. I think more likely we ought to walk out of here with more freedom. With more freedom because of... The condemnation that has been vaporized and obliterated. We have freedom to enjoy all things in Christ. If you are in Christ he has set you free. He has not withheld his love. He has poured it out for you. Poured it out. Because of what Jesus has accomplished for you once and for all on his cross and his empty tomb because he is even now sitting at the helm of the cosmos. Nothing is outside of his sovereign control for your life. So you do not have to worry. You can respond in thanksgiving and we can now live and enjoy all of life with thanksgiving, understanding the gifts which he has given us. Let's ask for his help this week as we go from here. Our Father, we pray that we might understand what you have done for us at the cross even more. We pray that while we might be able to ace a theology exam. That we are saved by grace through faith and not by works so that we might not boast whether we confess that we still place our faith in what we do and what we don't do. Help us. Help us to lift our eyes from what we do and to fix our eyes on Christ and what he has done. Help us to walk out of here in freedom in love for you in passion for you, and in love and in compassion for our neighbor. Help us to walk lives that are worthy of the gospel, but help us to live lives that are free in Christ. Keep us from constructing and making new laws for ourselves that we might convince ourselves that we are somehow worthy. Help us to trust in Christ, in Christ alone. All we have is Christ. Hallelujah. Hallelujah that all we have is Christ. We pray that we might trust it more deeply. In his name we pray. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.